Welcome to this episode of the Formula Podcast. I'm your friendly neighborhood host, Trevor Carlson. On this episode, I'm sitting down with film director Nura Kavorkian, and we're going to be talking about her Peabody Award-winning film, Batata. It's also up for an Academy Award, so it's it's really just a phenomenal story where this documentary has been worked on for over 10 years. It's a story of a Syrian uh, family that just starts out as regular potato farmers and you get to kind of follow their story uh, during the Syrian revolution and what happens after that. Uh, I just think that the this whole story behind the film is crazy. This is probably one of the most fascinating and impressive projects I've ever seen. And I hope that you get a little bit out of the interview with Nora and you have the chance to go see Batata for yourself. I'm not gonna ramble on any further. So without further ado, let's get on with the show with Nora Kevorkian. Today on the show, I have Nora Kvorkian, the director behind Batata. The story behind Batata is just fascinating. Like you spent 10 years on this film. It didn't, it wasn't intended to be what it eventually became. And now it's been rolled out. It's won, it's winning awards all over the world. It won the Peabody Award. Tell me, like, how did this film started in the first place? And what was like the original idea behind the film batata which is the title of the film means potato in arabic so originally the film started in 2009 as a film about potato farmers syrian potato farmers who were migrant workers came from syria to lebanon to work on the lebanese uh, land planting potatoes and I wanted to explore the political relationship between these two Arab countries, Lebanon and Syria. And I, I was born in Syria. My mom is Syrian. Lebanon, where I grew up, is my country and my dad is Lebanese. So it was supposed to be this interaction between two Arab people, countries who don't like each other, but they need each other and the politics of the Lebanese civil war all told through the potato fields and this charismatic woman named Maria. This is how the film started in 2009. And before I finished the film, the Syrian revolution started. And I grew up in Lebanon during the Lebanese civil war. And I wasn't scared of the revolution. I thought, oh, you know, there's always problems happening in the Middle East. And this is nothing. And we all assumed that it was going to be two, three, four months and it'll be over because everybody knew that Bashar al-Assad would never fall based on the history of what had happened. Sadly, it turned out to be true. But anyway, so I decided to follow another three, four months to cover the Syrian revolution. As any director would do, follow documentary director, follow twists and turns in their stories. But then what happened is that the revolution turned to civil war and by that time, I had already spent three years with my characters. I cared for them, um, and I uh, and I love Maria. And there were little kids that I cared for. And I thought, you know, I can't just drop the story, pack, and go back home to my own children who were little. Uh, so I made a commitment to 
following their lives until the day they would pack their bags and go home to Syria. But at the time, I didn't know that this was going to be 13 years saga. So it went on and on. Every year, I went two, three months, twice, all the way from Canada back to Lebanon, hung out in the refugee camps, lived with them on and off. And I filmed their lives. And so I was still filming after 10 years. And in March of 2020, the coronavirus, when the pandemic happened, um, I was forced to stay in a lockdown and ended up staying in Toronto and editing the 500 plus hours of footage, and which became the film Batata. And so we released it into the world. And you know that it's submitted to the Oscars for consideration for feature documentary. It won a Peabody. It went around the world in festivals. So I'm very happy with the the film, the success of the film. But I'm still following the lives of Maria and everyone else in the camp who was still stuck there after 13 years. So it sounds like it started out, as you said, you were just doing this film on the potato farmers and then it turned into this completely other thing that has spanned 13 years which is that to me it's just like a crazy crazy amount of time to spend on a single film or a single project my my daughter was eight weeks old when i started this film i was wearing her on my chest in a baby bjorn and i have a three-year-old son that i carried and we went together to start filming Batata, the original story. And now she's 14 years old. So her entire life, my kid's entire life has been the story of Batata. In fact, my daughter has made a little uh, two and a half minute French intro of Batata because when we couldn't go to the festivals, they would put that as the introduction. And it shows her from being born all the way now is her entire, our family's life is part of this film. And the only reason I did this commitment, because my dad is a refugee. He was born in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And my entire family's heritage, the Armenian heritage, is all about refugees, about massacres, about Armenian genocide, about displacement. And, you know, we're still not back in our ancestral homeland in eastern, in, in Turkey, in Marash. So it's part of my history's legacy so uh, story. And- I totally connect and it's important for me to tell other people's refugee stories. So I committed to it because it means a lot to me and I don't want to see that in the world. And sadly right now it's happening every day. There are new refugees in the world. And right now what's happening in Gaza is heartbreaking. And what's happened before to the Armenians of Artsakh who packed up their home and went to Armenia it's just really a big part of our lives. It seems like I don't, I don't know what happened before, like you know the like before the '90s and 2000s. But it didn't seem like like the older I get, it seems like it's becoming a more and more prevalent thing with like with conflicts in different regions and things like that. With the maybe it's just with the news, people are just finding out about it more. Maybe it was still happening before, but with the like the 24-hour news cycle and social media. One question I have is that with the refugee situations happening in different countries, and you've, like you said, it's been kind of a big part of your 
your life, even like your parents' lives, people who maybe haven't been exposed or haven't experienced some of the things that you have or seen the things that you have, is there something, and maybe it's part of the message of Batata is like, what's, what's, what's like one message you would like to communicate to, to, to people who haven't experienced them to maybe get them to, to understand or see things the way that you do? Well, I'd say to the audience is that try to go see the film Batata because it's a very unique film. Um, it gives the audience an opportunity to feel and understand what it, what it means to be a refugee. It is a very unique film because you get to meet human beings like us, everyday human beings who are working to support their families. And all of a sudden, political events happen and their life goes upside down. They become refugees. They live in tents. And you get to see how they eat, how they sleep, how they work, uh, what they love, how they get married. It is a slice of life that is inaccessible to majority of the people in the world. The fact that I was there with my camera in a small, tiny tent in a refugee camp for 10 years with them all the time, filming, watching as babies are born, as they grow up, little girls grow up and get married. You get to see it, and that makes you realize that these refugees that we hear on the media, oh, there are so many refugees, they cross the border, da, da, da. You realize that they're actually people just like us. They have amazing amount of stuff that people have, that they have to live in their home and pack their bag and run away. That fancy thing that they bought, the dress, the shoes, the, the wedding pictures, they left everything behind and ran away. I always tell people, imagine right now, wherever you're sitting and listening to me, take a second and look around. Look around at the, all the stuff you have that has meaning for you. Your grandfather's, uh, I don't know, picture, your mother's uh, uh, pillow, all the things. Imagine you have couple of minutes, bombs are falling. You have to pack yourself and go, right? Leave everything behind and go grab your children. And on the way, you could lose some of your family members to, to uh, bombing. And then you have to go in a tent city, sit on the floor in freezing conditions. You have no idea what's happening to your future. Are you ever going to go home? Where are your kids going to be? Are they going to have school? You have no idea. And imagine living like that for 13 years. And Palestinians have been living like that for 60 plus years. And the Armenians have been living that for like, it is unfathomable concept that we hear in the news and we just turn the channel or we go back doing all our stuff because we can't handle it. So I tell people, go see Batata and don't be worried that it will be a sad, depressing film. It is not. In fact, everyone comes out of the film full of hope and understanding, and they are in awe of this ability of people to connect to each other, to help each other. And Maria being this amazing warrior woman who could do stuff. So it, it's a really great experience to see this film. So I'm hoping that people 
will get a chance to access the film because right now it's really difficult to access it, especially in the States. I think only Academy members can vote, watch it on the, on the voting uh, channels. It's not accessible anywhere else. So as a filmmaker who dedicated this much time to this subject, my wish is that somehow it miraculously <laughs> it'll be available for people to see it. And that's why we make films. It's something that I experienced when I was when I was traveling around is I felt that the places where people and I it's kind of like a bittersweet thing, but the places where people had gone through the most, like the people where stuff had been really bad in in like the recent future, I just found everyone there to be like the most hospitable and the most friendly and the most like that's helpful. Right. I have a theory that it's because, you know, because of whatever they've gone through, maybe it's in a way it's made them, I, I don't, I don't know exactly why, but maybe it's, you know what I'm saying? I totally understand. Yeah. I grew up in a small, I was born in Syria. I grew up in uh, a few years. I lived in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, mm -hmm. where my dad is from. And then as a young girl, we moved to this little village called Anjar in the Beka Valley in Lebanon. In fact, I filmed Batata. The film is very close to the village where I grew up, where my mom and family still live. So that village, I made a film about that called Anjar Flowers, Goats and Heroes. It's about all the survivors in this 4,000 people village who are all collectively survivors from the Armenian genocide, 1915, committed by the Ottoman Turks. So they all ended up surviving and coming to that village. And there was that sense in the village of people experiencing collective trauma, collective problems. They kind of have this collective understanding. They're stronger together. They're more hospitable. They're more understanding. I totally know that because I grew up there. And I think that has made the person that I am because of all the experiences of listening to stories. You know, I'm a collector of stories. I, I, I absorb and archive stories. And, and I felt the same thing during the Lebanese Civil War when I was growing up. When you experience that kind of war and trauma, you connect to people and their connection is very strong. And in the refugee camp too, where I spent 10 years filming, and I can say that the Syrians in Lebanon in the refugee camp, they're so hospitable. They have hardly any food. If they had two cups of tea, they would offer you one. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you guys are starving, you know? But mm -hmm. they welcome you with big smiles, and they give you tea, and they're so exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes I don't see that here in the West, yeah. you know? Very, very, very. Um... I read I read something about this a long, it was, it was a book written in like the 30s or 40s. It said that some, this was kind of happening in the countries who were wealthier as everyone was kind of getting their own stuff. So they didn't want to, you weren't like going to your neighbor's house and everyone wasn't going together to watch like the, the game or whatever together. Mm -hmm. Everyone was getting their own. So you kind of wanted to, it became more yeah. individualistic. But I guess when, like, like you're saying, when you go through something challenging, then you're used to helping each other out. You kind of, you kind of become a stronger community. It's so, 
it's a very good example of what we went through in the in the world with the pandemic is that that's when mm-hmm. there was a collective trauma for everyone and we all experienced it together and it brought people together there's a lot of lot of empathy a lot of understanding helping each other all came because we experienced it together so that's the closest example we can have in the west where or if there's a you know a murder in a community everyone comes together there's a fire in the community that's our human nature and mm-hmm. so that's why i think documentary sto- stories that matter like they say in the peabody right stories that matter really is important documentaries to give people that sense because we can't experience it the audiences can't experience that in real life but when you go to the theater or you watch the film you get to experience that experience of being taking the journey of 10 years with your the characters and understanding their emotional physical and actual journey and it connects to them and and i get emails and social media people find me everywhere messages that are make me teary-eyed is like how they totally finally understood what it means to be refugee and they you know they they care about maria they understand things and it's really fulfilling for me and it's really makes me happy that you know it's doing what it's supposed to do now now that you're saying that i'm thinking like i'm starting to brainstorm all the people i know that could have screenings and things like that wherever they are one of the questions i wanted to ask you was right now i think as a like the world is kind of seeing the the palestinian crisis like what's going on there and a lot of people are wondering like what can i do like i see that there's there's things that aren't good happening i see that people are suffering and i know that like the refugee like there's more going to be more refugees that come out of this uh that whole situation like like what can what can like what what would you tell like the average person to do to like to help whether it's i I don't know i'll I'll leave that up to you because that's a question i have sometimes as well when you see these things happening like what what can you do well i mean immediate immediate reaction would be these people need help financial help financial support um there are organizations ngos that collect money to help them right but i think that's a temporary temporary solution i think as human beings we are at a point right now where we have to understand that we are so advanced in our intellect in our uh, technology and we have to come to a point where we have to realize that the resources on the face of the earth are limited you know the amount of resources they're blowing up uh, bombs uh, machinery, war efforts, they are destroying the earth and destroying each other. I mean, we have to figure out a way to stop the nonsense and find a way to help each other as human beings to put away uh, aside the religious ideologies. It's just really in the basic human thing is humanity, love, support every single person, no matter where they come from, what religion they are, they're all the same. They need a nice, comfortable home to live in, love, grow their children. 
that's really the basic things. And when you spend that much time in a refugee camp, you realize that's the most important thing to have security, safety, running water, love. We don't need all these other things that people are killing each other for. You know, who needs all these materialistic, capitalistic things? Your pers- people's perspective have to change. And for that, you need to educate yourself, reading, understanding, and I don't know, voting for the right people who are going to be our <laughs> leaders. I'm going yes. to end there because I don't want this to be political lecture. I really think, mm-hmm. <laughs> I really want, uh, I really hope that people will get a chance to see Batata, learn and understand what it feels like to be a refugee and uh, try and find their humanity in trying to help each other. Really, that's, yeah. that's all. One part of it that I think that the movie does is when you when you turn on the news, it's like, oh, there's there's a million refugees. There's a million refugees here, and but those refugees have names, like they're people. When you just kind of like put that, when they put the big label on them, it it makes it like, oh, well, it's it's not the same as if you're if you're like if you know somebody, if you've sat at a table with them, if you've had tea with them, if if you've been to their house, and then now they're a refugee. That's a different feeling than. If you just turn on the TV and then they're like, exactly, you know, exactly. Very, exactly. Yes. What I'm saying is that people, when people watched Batata, the film Batata, they would get to know Maria, the main character of the film, and mm-hmm. get to know every single person in the film with a first name. Get to see what they do, how they wear, how they think, how they dance at a wedding, and that gives you the understanding and 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 that concept of oh they're refugees disappears because then you are in the same level of a human being who just happens to live in a different part of the world or speaks a different language right and Mm -hmm. i think that's the success of the film uh, that that touches all the audiences you know it's been going around the world in the last year and a half it's been pretty much to so many festivals it won human rights awards couple of them you know uh, and we mentioned all the other awards and the Academy, all this. So that's what it's doing. It's touching people's hearts. And uh, that's why I think it's a successful film. Yeah. And we'll see where it will go. So Fingers crossed. I'm, I'm hoping that you get some good news that it's been nominated for, for the Academy. Yes, I, because I that, think that it if would I... be great for me, great for the film, but it would be amazing for the refugees. Mm-hmm. To finally have people vote for a film that is really about that, and then people haven't yeah. forgotten about that. I think mm-hmm. there would be party in the refugee camp. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the movie, like you, so you spent ten years making it, and there just has to be. I mean, there's so much footage that probably didn't even make it in the final final That's right. cut. A lot of footage. I, I just can't even imagine. And the amount of time it probably took you to edit it was probably just mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a big commitment of its own. But I'm wondering if there's if there's a piece of the film or a scene, whether whether it got included in the final final version or not, something that was like really meaningful and special to you. Like, do you have a part that when you're thinking of the film, you just think of this as like this was my this was like my absolutely favorite moment. Oh, it was heart touching like and fun. 
I know what you're asking, but I think it's like asking a mother, which child do you prefer more? You know, it's not an impossible question to answer. Because I've, I did everything on the film, right? And it was part of the reason for that is because there was no other way for me to film. There's no, the, the, the refugee camp is so small. The tents are so tiny that you can't bring in a food, a, a crew. It was just me with my camera sitting at a corner trying to blend in. And if you see the, when you see the film, you realize no one looks at my camera, which is, that's why it's cinema varieté, because it took forever for them to get used to me. And I was like the furniture in the tent, right? And uh, because I did so much, I got, I spent so much time with them that I care for everybody and all the stories. And so when it came time for me to edit the film, I spent two years editing by myself during the lockdown. And it was very emotional for me. Sometimes for the sake of the story, I had to, you know, kill our darlings or cut down this scene, cut down that character. And literally it, for me, I almost had to, to cry or, you know, take time to do that because when you uh, cut a scene with a person out of a movie, it's like they don't exist anymore in the real world because you audiences, we never get to know that character. And so you almost killed them, right? It's they're almost dead. And for me to accept that and understand that for the better of, a, a, you know, how long am I going to make my film? I cannot make it 500 hours. So it was very hard. And there are lots of characters in the film that they had to go because then I wanted the film to be very objective. It had to be, you know, uh, balanced in terms of sad things and happy things. Um, I didn't want it to be just sitting there and crying. You know, it, it, it would be counterproductive. So there was a, a character in the film who's a niece who was going through chemo cancer treatment. Can you imagine being in a refugee camp and going back and forth in the war to get chemo treatments? I mean, that's heartbreaking. And as much as I loved her, I had to cut that story out. And da, da, da. There's so many other stories about a little child who basically went deaf in the, in the uh, explosions in Hama, in Homs, sorry. All this stuff. But that's part of being a good storyteller is to know what to keep and what not to keep and who to focus on. Because the ultimate goal is for the audiences to love the film, to connect to the character and don't want the film to finish, which it looks like I succeeded. So the sacrifices were worth it. It wasn't just this family. It was like you were probably pretty much full of an entire community for this entire, for this 10 year period. So it's, you're not seeing kind of life unfold. I think that's one thing that maybe is like for like a listener that might think that might be important to understand is like, or just in anybody seeing the news now, it's like life doesn't stop because you can't become like a refugee. Like life is still going to continue. Right. You're, they're, they're still going to get married, have kids, go to school. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's why. Yeah. Sorry. Um, that's why my, my partner is a, a producer in uh, Canada. He's like a very experienced, one of the best producers in Canada. And he, and he helped me with the film. His name is Paul Scherzer. He's very creative. Um, 
and he calls it Boyhood for Syrian Refugees. You know, the movie Boyhood, right? So it, yes. it's, I'm like, well, it's a bit more than Boyhood because it's more than seven years and we're still filming. I'm still filming because of exactly what you said. Because how can you, how can you stop filming the lives of people that you spent 10 years with and audiences have spent 10 years watching them and they're still stuck in a refugee camp. And there is no end. There's no, you can't close that chapter. The chap, the book is still open. They're still refugees. They're still in the mud. As, as I speak to you, you know, Maria is caring for her parents in a tent, freezing cold. There's not enough, you know, Lebanon is in a, um, hyperinflation banking system has collapsed there's no jobs like it's a mess there and you can't end the story and i'm i really what i'm doing now it's almost becoming like a um sociology uh, research into the life of people who are refugees because we started before they became refugees and now we're continuing. It's almost like a study that's going to happen that's being captured on film. And we will see what happens in the next five years, 10 years. I don't know. Uh, I was at a yeah. award ceremony and I said, I'm hoping it won't, it won't be 30 years because I don't know if I can keep working that long, following their lives. I'm just, And for all their own sake, I hope that it will end soon because I would love to film that scene, everyone packing their bags and going to Syria. I think everyone who sees the movie will that there's a there's a part two where it's just like them going home. Yeah. You've you've put ten years, you said you can't you can't turn off the camera yet. From from an outsider's perspective, I, I feel like there's like two parts of it. Like one of it part of me relates to you and I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't wanna turn the camera off and stop the story until the story's done. But then there's a part of me that also feels like that almost it would take a toll a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like so I'm I'm wondering how what keeps you going? Like Good why question. do you why do you keep turning the camera on? Good question. Uh, it's, it's like how do I balance my personal life, my mental, emotional well being with continuing to film a very difficult subject matter like this. Um, mm-hmm. I think I um, touched a little bit about my upbringing. You know, I have the, I carry with me the collective trauma of the people, Armenian people, my families, people, rape, murder, genocide, all this. I already grew up with that in my own family. And when we lived, to, lived in this little village in Anjar, I absorbed all the stories of the elders. It was all about displacement, genocide. And then when I was a, uh, a child, the Lebanese civil war started and I experienced violence and trauma in being there with bombs falling, going down to shelters, being terrified of dying, all that stuff. So I already have all that in me. And then, so I came to Canada to, you know, start a new life and I'm losing the train of thought where I was going with this. Yeah. So I really care <laughs> about all this. This is something that is my life. I've always been thinking about other people's stories, putting myself in their shoes. So it's very hard for me to detach myself to Marie, from Maria and all these refugees because 
I know what it is to be a child thinking, oh, you know, in America, all the teenagers, all the young people, eight-year-olds are, nine-year-olds are like happily going to birthday parties and we are dying here. No one cares about us. I've had that thought as a child. So, so I know how they feel in, in the refugee camp. And I really don't want to be that Western person who's going to birthday party, not caring for them. So it's like, I can't, I can't stop myself, but I know the toll is paid for me is that physically, emotionally, mentally, I'm exhausted. I had funding for one and a half to two years for a film and I had to stretch it 12 years. Uh, and, you know, the re-traumatization for me was tough being in a refugee camp and seeing people dying and hearing the bombs falling on Damascus. All these things, you know, I'm still paying for that emotional, physical uh, re-traumatization. It's been very tough for me, but this, I'm continuing filming, but I'm trying to protect myself a little bit more now because I am a mother. I have children who need me and I've already left them enough uh, long times. I don't want to do that again. So I want to do this time a little bit differently and ask for help and have some uh, local uh, groups who would go and film for me because now I've already set things in motion and the refugees are so comfortable with the camera that uh, I they could work with it, right? So yeah. I'm hoping that I could do it a little differently so I don't have to constantly travel because that was very, very hard for me. Um, but also I have other projects, you know, uh, my partner is a producer and he has other projects and I have my own project, like one, our, our next project, um, that we are in development right now. And hopefully we go to camera in May, April, May. It's about an amazing Canadian woman who's, a this strong, charismatic woman who was born in 1912 and she's uh, deceased now. Her name is Ethel Malvaney. And it's really the stories about her uh, life story of how this woman who was neurodivergent suffered, not suffered, but lived through the bipolar condition and managed to live this bigger than life experience uh, by herself, unmarried, without chaperone, ended up in, in uh, Singapore, ended up in Japan, met the emperor, had a big life, fell in love, married, and ended up in prison in Changi as a prisoner of war. And there she became a leader. She helped people. She encouraged them. And towards the end, she ended up helping save the lives of 400 women and children. A liberation wow. happened. She came back to Canada. Uh, so I am very, very much attracted to people who are strong and have a mm -hmm. focus and do something with their life. And so Maria, the main character of Batata, is like that. And now Ethel Malvaney is like that. And so I'm kind of obsessed with her now. <laughs> She's an amazing woman and she's inspiring. I shouldn't say obsessed. Like I find her inspiring. Mm. And so I'm telling her story. Uh, it's a featured documentary to start because her life is very dramatic. It's, uh, it's going to be probably like our second step would be dramatic. 
a drama series about her life. But right now, I really want to start it with a feature drama, a feature documentary, because we I have 15 hours of her voice, audio interviews, and I'm going to use her mm -hmm. audio interviews to tell her life posthumously and reenactments and archives that we have to tell her fascinating story because she is a Canadian war hero and she needs to be celebrated for that. It seems like you, you're able to find, I'm curious, well, you're able to find these amazing people that, um, and you're able to tell their story. And I'm sure that this, like, she sounds, sounds like a phenomenal woman. I'm very excited to, at yeah. some point in time in the future, to see that film too. How do you, so as a filmmaker and storyteller, how do you, how do you come up with, well, how can I phrase this? Because there, I think there's a lot of people out there that want to tell good stories and they want to highlight things that they care about. So I guess this is a two-part question. It's how do you find and kind of come up with your own stories and find people like this that you want to highlight? And then if somebody else is looking to do the same with somebody they've met, a story they've heard, what advice do you have to them? Like, how would you advise them to go about doing that? Um, I mean, being a documentary filmmaker is a very big commitment. It is not easy. Um, if you are looking for fame and money, it's totally the wrong career for you. There is no uh, anything uh, fancy or <laughs> money in documentary filmmaking. I would say that for the last 20 years that I've been making films, it is not that. So it's for people who really have a passion to tell stories that matter. So if you can find a story that resonates with you in your heart, in your soul, you care about that. And it is, it is you're telling that story for the right reasons, then definitely go for it. It has to be, it has to be something you care about because it, it shows on the screen if you care about it or you just did it mm -hmm. to deliver something to TV station. It totally shows. Uh, yeah, so follow your heart and be prepared. I think my advice would be is be prepared from the beginning to know, expect what the toll is going to be on you. I mean, not every documentary film is difficult, uh, traumatic traumatizing or difficult subject it could be like you know it'd be great to make a documentary about like an amazing musician there's no trauma in there but i'm just saying like be prepared from the beginning as to how much is the toll meaning could be financial time wise away from your children if you're going to follow a musician around the world how much time are you going to be away from your kids can you handle that how is he going to you have to think about these things because the inherent Sorry, there's a raccoon outside. We're in Toronto. <laughs> there's an That's inherent funny. solitude in documentary filmmaking, but it's inherent um, surprise as well because you don't know where the story is going to go. Just like Batata, it was supposed to be two years, ended up to be 12. So when you prepare yourself for that, then you have a plan and you have support system. 
And if you're dealing with difficult subjects, you need you need the support system. You need, a, 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 I don't know, friends to talk to, uh, someone's shoulder to cry on, a psychologist, hopefully psychiatrist, somebody that would give you advice and listen to you depending on your subject and what you're doing. That would be the biggest advice because I did none of that. And now mm-hmm. I look back, I'm like, oh, I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's... That's probably not what most people would expect because, you know, they'd probably be thinking like, oh, this is how you, you know, frame the story and all that. But you're like, no, you you have to take care of yourself in the process. Yeah, definitely. Because um, if you're feeling healthy, you don't have pain uh, and your mind is well, you don't have, you know, like I suffer from complex PTSD. It's part of my childhood traumas and part of re-traumatizing the overdose. So if you don't have to suffer from these things or you're physically healthy, mentally healthy, everything's fine, it's much easier to imagine how you're going to tell the story or, you know, worry about which uh, genre am I going to use or how I'm going to put the camera and, and how I'm going to edit. Those become much easier. But people mm-hmm. usually don't talk about the other difficult stuff. But, you know, finally, we are in the place in the world where people are talking about mental health. And I don't think we would have done that even five years ago. Nobody would mention that. Yeah. So we are moving to a shift right now. And for women, I think I would add extra uh, advice is that depending on where you're working as a woman, you have to have different uh, safety protocols in place, uh, depending on your working conditions, right? And as a mother, yeah. you also have to uh, put in some financing plans to be able to ch- take care of childcare. You know, I carried my baby with me to the refugee camp. I was filming hanging a baby here and running back and forth with my mother's house to nurse my child. You know, so if you plan for that earlier, you might have some budget to have a, a help with you, someone who can bring you the baby, you nurse them, and you, they go back and you can continue filming. This kind of stuff. I mean, I, that, just that planning ahead. I Because I, you know, I've been thinking of getting into, working on getting into filmmaking, and and that's not even something that comes up is when you're like, oh, I want to make a film. You don't really think about the impact that it's going to have on you or the people around you. Like I'm, you know, I'm engaged starting a family sometime soon. Like if I'm going to make this grand documentary that requires traveling to all these different places, like what impact is that going to have on my spouse, on my kids? How, how am I going to manage all that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that too. Uh, Yes. All those, all those things. So I think, I think that's really good advice. And so I, I know we're running a little tight on time. So I wanted to ask you two two quick questions. One was, if Maria was on the show or the family was on the show, what do you think that they would, like, what's what's like one message that you think that they would want to share with like, within, with like the audience that's uh, hopefully going to watch Patata sometime soon? Well, uh, you know, Maria always says that we're just like you. We are the same people. We are similar people. I'm a woman whose dream is to get married and have a family. I, my dream is to have a nice, comfortable life. My dream is to go home to my country, live in my own country. 
And so, you know, it's people to realize that, that these refugees are just people like us. They have, we are all the same. And she would say, please go watch Batata and get to see how we live and don't forget us. Because really, sometimes they feel that people forget them. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, the news cover about Syrian refugees, all these things that happened. And now we don't talk about them because we have, sadly, other refugees to talk about. Other horrible things are happening. So they feel that they're being forgotten. And I keep telling her, like, I'm not going to let you be forgotten because the film is doing that, is reminding people of your story and all the rest stories of refugees. And now we still are hopeful that, you know, uh, the Academy votes that are starting soon, that somebody would vote for us and hopefully we will get successful. Hopefully we get nominated. And then that means people would know about you and they would want to watch your film. So don't give up hope. That's what I tell her. In fact, yeah. I call her later today. She's expecting a, a reply <laughs> that she texted me earlier. So I will tell her the same thing. I have to keep yes. her strong. <laughs> it sounds. It sounds like you guys kind of you both support each other in this whole in the whole process of promoting the film. I'm well, not promoting the film, but promoting the story and and making yeah. sure that the word gets out about these stories. Uh, okay, last last thing. Uh, this <laughs> is probably. I don't know if this is the most important question, but it is an important one. Um, how can how can they somebody listening to this? How can they best support you or best support Tata or the refugees um, that you work with? Uh, well, there's two ways to help. What three ways? One is spread the word about Batata and and send it out to people so they hear about the film and they know that we are an Oscar contender. Um, Second is uh, I have set up a GoFundMe campaign to raise funds so that I could continue filming the second installment of Patata, continuing like the, you know, so there's always, I would love to get donations for that because it's a very long-term process doc that I have to fi finance. And the third is any time of financial contributions to Maria directly to them, if if people want to send money cash to her directly or to donate to refugee organizations ngos through unhcr or other places to donate if someone wants to send directly money to maria they can get in touch with me i can give them her information they can send it with western union and she can pick it up or we can do a collection, which I usually do, to cut down the costs for transfers and banking. And they can send me e-transfers, and I do a lump sum and send it to camp. If there's a if there's a link or something along, like some some way that they can get in contact with you, um, I sure. can just add that in the in the show sure. notes if they want to send money directly or the link to the, uh, the GoFundMe. Yes. And we'll make sure that uh, even though we don't have a big audience, hopefully hopefully there are some people out there that do decide to contribute through watching this interview. And I and I just I just want to say that I think that everything everything that you shared and everything that uh, everything that the story that stories that you're telling and sharing kind of bringing light to like the life of a refugee and, and the work that you've put in is just is really extraordinary. And I think it's you know, I think it's something that 
a lot of people who do want to become storytellers are like it's very aspirational like it's very inspiring for them so um yeah i applaud you on your work and i hope that thank you Tata chapter two comes out soon and <laughs> sooner than later and it's a it's a very happy ending Thanks for checking out this episode of the Formula Podcast. Uh, I hate asking for this, but if you don't mind, if you could leave us a quick review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever app you're watching or listening this on, uh, that'd be great. It helps people like you find the show, helps me know that our message and the things I'm sharing are helping and you're learning some stuff from it. It's beneficial to your life in some way. You've let me know what you've learned or taken away from these hundred plus episodes we've done so far. And, you know, if you have any ideas for anything else you'd like to hear. But uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. Super appreciate you. And enjoy the rest of your day. See you next time. Ciao.